God, we, uh, we come today, um, and we've said this before, we trust the Bible, and we trust the Bible because we trust Jesus, and Jesus trusted the Bible. Uh, but we know that we can't understand it. Um, under, we can't understand it in the life-giving way we want to understand it unless your Holy Spirit's involved in the process. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome your voice. We welcome the way you even draw pictures for us, Holy Spirit, so we can understand things and see things in ways we haven't before because you, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, you're for us and you want us to become fully alive people. And that's how we, uh, we do that, by understanding and living by your word. And then through that, you change us. And we love you. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. So I want to talk about one of my mild obsessions. And Kathy might say it's not a mild obsession, but Sadie mentioned it last week. But I have this mild obsession with broccoli. Like, uh, I, it makes no sense to me. Um, on my birthday, I had broccoli twice. And you're thinking, on your birthday, you should never even touch that, right? So I get broccoli instead of french fries when I'm, if, if ever possible, at a, at a restaurant. If they don't offer broccoli as an alternative, I'm a little upset. Um, I... <laughs> Yeah, the, the new thing in our family is we often, when our kids are at home, we like going to Mother Bear's Pizza. They don't serve broccoli, in case you're a broccoli person. They don't serve broccoli. But I, when I, if I just eat pizza, I feel like I'm not really being healthy, and I'm not like a health nut. So I sneak, and my family doesn't even know it, I sneak a baggie of broccoli in my pocket, and I eat it between bites of pizza. And my kids don't know it, Kathy doesn't know it, and then I pull out the empty bag, they're like, Dad, you did it again! So every time we go, I figure out new ways to kind of hide what I'm doing. And, uh, and you might say, you're, you're weird. I guess it is weird. Because I don't think I've brought broccoli anywhere else, any other restaurant. But it's, have I? Maybe I have. Not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I even, you know, the other day somebody was wanting to eat lunch with me this week, somebody from another church that I know. I, he asked me where I wanted to go, and my first thought was, well, who serves broccoli at lunch? I mean, that's just how... Um, and when I was a kid, I hated broccoli. I mean, it, it is still a very vile weed, right? It's a, it's a vile weed, but I eat it, and I'm assuming maybe God knows something about my body that I don't know, and maybe he gave me this un irrational like for broccoli. I'm still not sure if broccoli existed before the fall or not. I don't know. It might, may not have. I don't know. But so, so, my, so you can see I'm obsessed with it. But something else recently from Scripture has been kind of obsessive to me, and it's made me kind of think a lot about what? What is this? And so we've been studying the, the talking about honoring the Holy Spirit. And so last week we talked about some. So we talked about a lot of stuff in the Book of Acts and the Holy Spirit's encouragement. But last week we looked at a phrase where it said the hand of the Lord was with them, and it talked about being with the church. And because the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number of people believed. So I was kind of a, I've been obsessed with this statement: the hand of the Lord was with them, and I. And I talked about it last week. You know, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And the question I asked last week, what would that be like if that was said about Exodus Church? What would it be like if it was said about all the Christ-centered churches in Bloomington? If it was said, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So I've been obsessed with that lately, that, that phrase. And so with the help of computer software, I can search that phrase throughout the Bible and try to figure out, hey, what does that mean, and how do you get it? I mean, we, we can see in this case, there was a, a real obvious result was 
people that weren't following Jesus all of a sudden saw things about Jesus and they started following him. And I asked you last week to think about your friends or neighbors in Bloomington or co-workers who you might think and I might think why the last thing they want in their life is following Jesus. But it seems like in the book of Acts that was true of the church, that people started following Jesus because the hand of the Lord was on the church. And what does that mean? How do you, how do you, where do we sign up for that? You know? So I did this whole you know, Bible search of the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, and of course it shows up in the Old Testament. And because I was thinking, okay, Luke, Luke is the one uh, that wrote the book of Acts. And so when he used this phrase... He was also, he was thinking about, it had some meaning from him because he used the phrase for a reason. And he probably used it because it shows up in the Old Testament. But he also knew his readers would know when he said that, they might go back to some Old Testament stories where the hand of the Lord was active. And so you start thinking about, what does that mean when the hand of the Lord is on people? So uh, this week and next week, maybe one more after that, we're going to just, we're going to keep one finger on the book of Acts. We're going to go back to the Old Testament this week we're going to go back to the book of Ezra and talk about the hand of the Lord. And then we're going to think, hey, where does that jump back to here? Because we always, I had a conversation with somebody this week about this. We always study the Old Testament, not for the sake of the Old Testament. We should always keep a finger on the New Testament and Jesus and the cross. Then study the Old Testament. And then what we learn will help us come back and redo this. But we don't, ooh, we don't just study the Old Testament. I mean, a friend of mine once told me, I'm actually a mentor, if you preach from the Old Testament and you don't end up with Jesus, then you simply preached a, a good sermon that would go really good in a Jewish synagogue. And it might have some good moral principles to live by, but if you jump from the Old Testament to the New and just stay there and don't come back to here, then you haven't really, you're not preaching the gospel. So we're going to keep our finger on this passage. Uh, maybe not literally, but the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Again, thinking, what would it look like for friends that you and I have, or neighbors, or co-workers, to believe and turn to Jesus? I mean, really, what would that look like? It would be shocking for us. What would it look like for Exodus Church, or Emmanuel Baptist, or Sherwood Oaks, or other churches in town that follow Jesus, if all of a sudden that was true about the church in Bloomington? So we're going to go back to Ezra, go back to that, go to the next slide there. So we're going to go back to Ezra, the book of Ezra. It's an Old Testament book. And let me give you a little context in order to understand what's going on. The context is helpful. So this is about uh, 500, 600 B.C. All right? So what had just happened previous, God was um, fed up is a good word. He was fed up with the disobedience of his people. They were continuing to not follow Jesus not Jesus. They were not following the law of God in the Old Testament. They were not following God. They were not seeking God. They were not obeying God. And God gave them multiple opportunities and prophets come in and tell them, repent and turn back to God, and they didn't. So God, like God does, he gave them over, okay, you have it your way. And then the Babylonians came in and just destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Israel. And people were taken into captivity. It was called the ba Babylonian exile, Babylonian captivity. So all these, they didn't, just, they didn't just level the towns and level the temple. They leveled the walls of Jerusalem. As part of what is the, how they did things, they take scores and thousands of people back into exile. They go way over here into Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. 
It's months and months of a walking journey. It's 800 miles. It's miserable. So all of God's people are, not all, all the ones who are remaining, get taken against their will to a country that's not theirs. Temples, temples have been destroyed, and they are devastated. They're devastated. Their spiritual life is only kept alive because God has some prophets. Some of the Old Testament prophets are active during that time while they're in Babylon. But then, uh, and God had already promised that their, the captivity wouldn't last more than 70 years. God always keeps his promises. So there's a wave of exiles that are allowed to go back to Jerusalem, uh, rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple. And uh, again, God keeps his promises. Then there's a second wave that was allowed to go back. And this is the wave we're going to be talking about. This is where Ezra's involved. Ezra was a priest. No, nothing special about him except he was just one of the priests. But at that time he was living in exile in Babylon. And, um, but God calls Ezra and God puts his hand on Ezra to go back to Jerusalem with more people. And not only the, the temple had been rebuilt, but he, comes, he goes back to even highlight and finish the temple's rebuilding and even make it more glorious. And, and I'll talk about what that means in a second. So, uh, so this is the book of Ezra. Again, it's 5, 600 B.C. So let me just jump to one of the verses that Ezra talks about, all right, or that the, 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 the writer talks about. Seventh chapter, it says, For the gracious hand of God was on him. All right. And that phrase in some form appears six times in two chapters. All right, let me just kind of read through them. The gracious hand of God was on him. The gracious hand of my Lord was on me, Ezra says on himself. Since the gracious hand of God was on us, he says, our God's hand of protection is on us. The gracious hand of our God has protected us. So for six different times, the hand of the Lord, the gracious hand of the Lord, he's on us, he's protecting us. And so this, again, there's this, and we started with Acts, the hand was on them and many believed. Now we're back here and okay, the, the gracious hand of God was on Ezra. So again, I asked the question, where do I get that? How do, how do I get that? How do we get that? How do you get that? How do you get that on your marriage? How do you get that in your life, the hand of God? So uh, leave it on this slide for a second. But so I want you to kind of imagine what, so the gracious hand of the Lord was on him. This was because Ezra, and let's fill in the blanks with what we often think, well, Ezra must have, uh, must have been a good person. And, or maybe he just won the God lottery. And God just said, okay, uh, Ezra, put my hand on him. And we have all the, you know, well, or, well, you know, if I, if I just buck up and if I go to church and I tithe and, and we kind of make it this, I got to check off the list. If I check off the list, surely God owes me, right? I mean, we have this, we have this belief that nobody says what was true, that, well, if I'm a good person and I, uh, if I'm a good person, and if God's good, then shouldn't all be well? And shouldn't I get all this? And, and we, we don't, or we just don't know. We might, we might fill in the blank and say, for the gracious hand of God was, was on him. This was because Ezra, and we may just leave it as a dot, dot, dot. Like, I don't know. How does God's hand become on people? So let's just finish the passage here. Go to the next slide. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord. Teach those degrees and regulations of the people of Israel. But I'm just gonna, I want you to focus on, just simply on this one, the word, or the, 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 two, the three words, study and obey. 
Because we, we can then we can clearly say from this, okay, seems like the hand of the Lord is on those who are committed to understanding and obeying his word. And, and I'm not saying that in a legalistic way. The Pharisees made it a legalistic thing. The Pharisees, probably even from this passage, said, well, if we just could obey the law, and they, then they make it this this heavy yoke of obedience. If we just could obey the law, then God will... They made it this legalistic thing that was all about them and their behaviors and not, no longer about their heart. But yet, it's very clear, the gracious hand of God was on Ezra because Ezra determined to study and obey. So, jumping back to the book of Acts, in that book of Acts, verse 5, we're told the Holy Spirit, literally, is given to those who obey him. So the hand of the Lord, Ezra, is on Ezra because he studied and obeyed the word of God. Book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. And then you might ask, as I ask, well, obey what? I mean, we're we talking Ten Commandments here. Do I have a checklist? Yeah, I mean, Ten Commandments. That, but, but you also think about what are the things... In the book of Acts, it was given to those who obey him, and they're talking about Jesus. And think of the things Jesus told us to do. Yes, Jesus would have obeyed the Ten Commandments with a whole different kind of life. But he also said, forgive those who hurt you. Love your enemies. Do good to those who speak badly of you. I mean, that's hard to obey. And maybe you might think of those categories right now for you. Maybe somebody's hurt you. Maybe somebody's an enemy of yours. They speak against you. And the commandments, the obedience that God's asking of you is forgive them and do good to them. All right? Jesus talks about uh, adhering to the moral law and sexual immorality and um, obeying uh, God in that part of your life. Jesus talks about how we treat the... Uh, how we uh, treat the poor. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. He talks about all. And again, this is not a legalistic checklist. Well, if I just do one more thing, then, I, then God owes me the Holy Spirit. But I guess I'll ask you, is there some area of your life, and I'm asking myself, that God's asking you to obey something very practical. Maybe it's a forgiveness issue. Maybe it's a money issue. Maybe it's a habit issue. And God's asking you to obey very clearly what he's telling you to do. That is directly related to whether or not the hand of God is on you or not. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of tit for tat. No, it's just the way God works is why would he put his hand on somebody who has no interest in doing what he wants to do, what God wants to do? Why would he, you know, why would he, why would he, why would he entrust you with money if you have no interest in using that money to advance so people can see Jesus more clearly? Because the hand of God on Ezra, and we're going to see next week the hand of God on Ezekiel, and we see in the book of Acts the hand of God on the church, was because they were committed to put the spotlight on, on the goodness of God in the book of Acts. They were committed to putting the spotlight on the, on the power of Jesus. If you're committed, or if I'm committed to me and my advancement, if I'm committed to my comfort in life, the hand of God will not, he will not put his hand on me. Because he doesn't want... Why would he put his hand on me so I can achieve my objective or my will? His hand is on those who are committed to achieve what he wants, which is a huge spotlight on Jesus and the advancement of the kingdom, of, kingdom in Bloomington, Indiana, in your home, in your neighborhood. That's what he puts his hand on. And, and he doesn't put his hand on your agenda. He doesn't put his hand on my agenda. We, we wish he would. 
just a little bit, just a little hand for this one. But no, he puts his hand on those who are committed. And Ezra was committed to going back. Not only was he called to go back and, and kind of fine-tune the finish of the temple, but he was also to go back and to bring leaders with him who would actually teach the people to obey the word of God. That was one of the things he was given a calling to do. And it's actually one of the things the Babylonian king, who was total pagan, wanted him to do. So you see the hand of God was on Ezra because even pagans, the pagan king was telling Ezra and gave Ezra a letter that said, on your way back, you can ask for gold or silver from anybody and they will give it to you because you have a letter from the king. I mean, talk about the favor of God on somebody, the hand of God, is that they were, he was allowed to do things Talk about how much God would trust a man like Ezra. He was allowed to get so many pounds of gold and silver from anybody he asked, any king on the way, oil, food, whatever, because, Ezra said, the gracious hand of God was on us. Right? So obedience. The New Testament church, people turned to, turned to the Lord and believed in Jesus because the church had the Holy Spirit, which meant they had the hand of God on them, and they had the Holy Spirit because we're told in Acts 5, because they obeyed. They did what Jesus told them to do. It's, it's simplistic, but it's awful. We, make it, we can make it awful, awfully complicated. So there's another passage in Acts. Ezra, go to the next one. So now, now that when they're going back, Ezra even says, I didn't, you know, he, he asked the king for all kinds of stuff, this pagan king in Babylon. And the king just like, sure, sure, gold, silver, this, whatever. And it was amazing. And he said, I didn't ask the king for any protection, like horses and chariots and soldiers. I mean, you're going back to Israel on a many-month journey, and you've got silver and gold. I, I guarantee you're going to have bandits figuring that out, right? So he said, actually says, I was too ashamed to ask the king for protection. Now, it wasn't shame like, I'm so ashamed. He said, I was too ashamed to ask the king for, to send chariots and protection with us because I, I, I had already told him that God's hand of protection is on us. So why would I ask him for protection when I've told the king, well, God's hand of protection is on us. Why would I do that? And then, so again, in your mind, let's fill in the blank here. Our God's hand of protection is on all who, all who what? what? In the checklist, there's it. all who have tithed lately. God's hand of protection on all who have a Jesus bumper sticker on their car, have a cross in their hallway, wear a cross around their neck. Is that how you get protection? It almost, because sometimes, in, even in the true followers of Jesus, we almost come to this superstition well, we got to figure out some way so we're covered, and, or we just claim the coverage of whatever, and you know, God should protect us. So, but, so the hand of protection is on all who, and I'll finish the sentence here, seek him. God's hand of protection is on all who seek him. And I was going to leave this last part of the verse out, but I thought that would be dishonest of me biblically. But his fierce anger rages against those who abandoned him. Because he talks about the reason they were in exile in the first place was they had abandoned God. And I suppose abandoned in that sense is the opposite of seeking. If I'm, you know, if I'm seeking to get to know my wife better, that's the opposite of me just abandoning her. But seeking is a very active thing. Who seek him. 
some translations translate that word as to worship him or to honor him, but I think seek is a, is a, is a better way to kind of capture it in one word. So God's hand of protection is on all who seek him. Okay, then you ask, as I would ask, okay, how do I seek God? Well, then we have to think about, okay, about Jesus, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things be added to you. Okay, how do I... Well, Jesus said that, seeking, in the context of your money. So part of how we seek God is with our money. And again, God doesn't have a cash flow problem. But Jesus clearly talks about and teaches in the New Testament the idea of tithing. Exodus doesn't have a cash flow problem. But if you're not giving, and I'm, I'm, I said, I've said this before, if you're not giving, if you're questioning my motive, I'll give you a list of 30 churches to give to in Bloomington. I don't, we, don't, we don't want the money. I mean, we do, but we don't, you know what I mean. It's not that. You give because, uh, if you're giving, it's because, when you give, it's because God does something for your soul. It does, Exodus does, it's, it's not about an Exodus bank account. We're fine in that sense. But give, if you're not giving, if you're not giving 10% of your income, then, and because Ezra even talks more in the rest of the chapter about money and giving and sacrifice. If you're not, then the hand of, hand of God will not be on you in this kind of way. And again, it's not punitive on God's part. It's because he knows that unless you release and let go in the way he tells you to let go of your own financial security, you will not be able to trust him in the way that he will trust you with money he gives you. And again, I, I'll give you a list of 30 churches or 40 churches in town to give money to. But um, if you're not in that habit, I'm going to challenge you to get in the habit of giving a tenth of your income on a regular basis uh, to the church. And again, could be Exodus, could be whatever church you want to in Bloomington. So, but that's one seek. But the other seeking, you think about, okay, there's you know, spiritual habits. Um, some of us uh, read our Bible on a regular basis. Sometimes we don't. Some of us pray on a regular basis. Sometimes we don't. And again, I'm not, I'm not looking for checking off the boxes, but maybe there's something that you felt like God's stretching you or asking you to do that would be evidence of seeking him. I mean, if you don't have a regular habit of reading the Bible, even if it's two minutes a day. I mean, I, I use, I don't know my phone is over there. There's a Bible app. What's it called? You version. And they have a verse of the day, and I usually read the verse of the day, and I read the chapter around the verse. And if I have more time, I'll look at the chapters before and after, because I just, it's a, you know, we're on our phones habitually anyway. Use your phone for a habit in a good way. Download the Bible app. It's called Version, Y-O-U, Version. And, um, but get in the habit of reading the Bible, because you seek God that way. Or maybe it's like, well, I don't really, I don't really pray that much. Well, make it a goal to do two minutes a day. Maybe if your car drive to work is 10 minutes, turn the radio off and the CD player off or whatever, you put your phone off or whatever, and just talk to God for 10 do, You can do little pieces. You don't have to do it, but you, so you seek God by making time for him. Or maybe, maybe it's fasting, and you might think, oh, I don't want to do it. But, I mean, fasting was a way people in Scripture sought God. Even Ezra talks, they, talks in him that they fasted as they sought God. And maybe... And you're like, oh, why are you talking about fasting when we're going to the holiday season? You know, let's do it after the holiday season. But fasting might just be a meal a week. You, you, you skip Tuesday lunch, take a long walk and pray. Or, 
you know, one of the habits I've done in the past is I'll go from dinner one night to dinner the next night. And, and it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't like appease the gods, but when you fast, um, what did Jesus say? Uh, because we need, we need the word of God more than we need bread. And God can use your fasting in ways where all of a sudden you start hearing things and thinking things that maybe God has uh, been wanting to say to you. And again, it's, it's not about going hungry. It's about going hungry. And when I'm, the times when I fasted, when I have a hunger pain, which happens a lot with me because I really crave broccoli on those days. No, I don't. I don't crave broccoli at all when I'm hungry. When I'm really hungry, I crave probably good food, not broccoli. But when, I, but when I have a hunger craving, I think, uh, I've tried to switch it in my head. Okay, God, what if, I, what if I sought you with that kind of craving? That's what I want. I mean, if nothing else, when you fast, just do that. When, you, when your body's crying out for hunger, God, I, I want you more than my body wants food. I want to be that way. I'm not that way. I really want food right now, but I'm not that way. Um, somebody said to me, or I read this somewhere recently. It was good. They, the question was this. When was the last time you did something to seek God for the first time? In other words, when was the last time you tried something new in your pursuit of God? Maybe you read the Bible in a different way or longer or a different time. Or maybe you, um, you, you start to pray. Maybe you try to fast. When's the last time you did something to seek God for the first time or, or in a long time? When's the last time you kind of, I'm doing this like, you know, yeah. when somebody's driving a stick shift car for the first time, you do this jerking around and stuff like that. Maybe your spiritual life needs one of those, ugh, kind of, a, and it needs to be a shift of something. Yeah, maybe it can be a small thing, like I said, the Bible app and reading all these things. But maybe there's something you think, you know what, I'm, between now and Christmas, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this. I mean, don't make it a year long. Don't make it your goal to read the Bible five times in the next year because you will fail, all right? give a reasonable goal of what it means for you to seek God. I, I, I don't know all of you super well, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not, none of us are in the category that we've, we've abandoned him. But there's a big continuum there. You can abandon God or you can seek him, but sometimes we can just get comfortable in the middle. Well, I'm not going to abandon him, but I'm not really doing anything active to seek him. I just, you know, I'm just maintaining status quo. Well, kind of realized my own life, maintaining status quo is not seeking him. That's just maintaining status quo, right? So two words. Go to the next slide. There are two words. Uh, uh, actually, this is, yeah, go to this right here, seek and obey, because that's what Ezra said. The hand of the Lord was on him because the Bible tells us because he studied and obeyed the word of God. And then the hand of God's protection is on those who seek him. So it seems like the hand of God is on those who obey and seek. And not that it's an automatic reflex of God, but it seems like God will put his hand on anybody who takes, walks down these paths. So now we go back. Now put that Acts slide back up there, Matt. They, uh, so now we go back. So we realize from Esther, Esther, Ezra, the hand of God is on those who seek him. hand of God is those who obey him. So when Luke's writing the book of Acts and he uses this phrase... Most good Jews would have thought right away of Ezra or Ezekiel, which we look at next week. And they knew that the hand of God being on them wasn't a simple act of luck 
it wasn't that they won the God lottery. It wasn't because they had a bigger building, better music, better preaching, or uh, you know, better advertisement. They knew that the hand of the Lord was on people who obeyed God and sought after him. And they did. That's how they lived their life in the book of Acts, post-Jesus' resurrection, with the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Because the hand of the God, on, God on them, I think, is synonymous with the Holy Spirit working in them. And they had a great number of people believe and turn to the Lord. And so, again, the, the hand, of the God, hand of God being on Exodus is not about Exodus. The hand of God being on uh, Christ Community Church, which used, to, which used to be Evangelical Community Church. The hand of God on them is not about them. It's not about Sherwood Oaks. It's not about St. Paul Catholic. It's not about Hope Presbyterian. It's about people in Bloomington turning and obeying and following Jesus. So we want the hand of God on us as a church because we want to see that result. We want the hand of God on the whole church in Bloomington because we want to see that result. But it starts with our choices. It starts with the choices of individuals to seek and obey. A church doesn't seek and obey. The building doesn't seek and obey. The leadership, it's not just about the leadership seeking and obeying. It's about the people of the body of Jesus seeking to obey. Seeking God and obeying his word. And then the hand of God becomes evident when we do that. So let me pray, and then we'll take communion, but I'm going to pray this way. God, I'm going to pray first for these people here, um, our family here. I pray that we would obey your word. If there's some mission in our life where we're fighting you on that, that we would relent and trust you and obey you because you are good, like we sang earlier. Pray for those here that we would seek you and that you would even stir us to seek you in ways that we either have left behind, stopped doing, or maybe ways, new ways in which you're asking us to pursue you and know you. And I pray because of that, your hand would be on our individual lives. Your hand of protection would be on our marriages and our friendships. Your hand, of, of, your hand would be on us even for future direction and insight and the provision that you provide. Because you provided Ezra with incredible provision because your hand was on him. So for our provision, for our protection of our families, relationships, futures, health, um, I pray that your hand would be on us. Um, but again, we know that our responsibility is we obey and seek you. But we, we are convinced, God, that you are eager to put your hand on us, eager to do that. So we also pray for um, us as a church in that way. Pray for the churches in Bloomington that are centered around Jesus. And again, I've mentioned Sherwood Oaks or Emmanuel Baptist or Mount Calvary Baptist, Living Waters Church, St. Paul Catholic Church. Um, many, many churches in Bloomington um, where they follow Jesus, they trust the Bible. I pray that you would uh, stir their, their people to obey your word and to seek you. And in doing so, would you create this person-by-person person, uh, revival in Bloomington that when your church begins to seek you and obey you, then we start seeing friends, neighbors, co-workers turning, repenting, and following you, Jesus, and experiencing the newness of life that only you can give, because that's what we want. We're not interested in our church just getting bigger. We're not interested in other churches in Bloomington just getting bigger. We're interested in your kingdom, your people growing bigger. 
and having more and more people in Bloomington who follow you. We're, we want to see a, a, a mass wave of baptisms throughout all the Christ-centered churches in Bloomington. And uh, so your hand on us is what we want, but give us the courage and the grace that we only can get from you to be the people who obey and seek. Uh, we love you. Um, we love the power of your hand. We love the tenderness of your hand. Uh, and we love just the touch of your hand. So touch each one of us in ways that we know it's you. And we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.